what you want, when you want it, where you want it. This is The Mesh. Welcome to the Caregiver Community, an educational forum for family caregivers where we hold conversations about the challenges as well as the joys of caring for our aging parents and caring for ourselves. My name is Jane Everson and my co-host is Frances Hall. How are you today, Frances? I'm doing fine. Thanks, I'm Jane. glad to hear that. Frances and I began the caregiver community because we are two of an estimated 10 million adult child caregivers in the United States. People just like our listeners who are caring for our aging parents, but are also taking care of ourselves. In this session, we're going to be talking about a range of services offered by hospice and palliative care, and we're going to be putting a specific emphasis on how they might assist our aging parents and their adult child caregivers. Our guest today is Ms. Julie Packer. Julie serves as the Director of Professional Relations for Catawba Regional Hospice in Newton, North Carolina. She has 33 years of history in hospice care in um, Los Angeles, California, Western North Carolina, and Portland, Oregon. Julie has a Bachelor of Science degree in nursing from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and a Master's of Science in Oncology Nursing from Duke University, also here in North Carolina. Currently, Julie's focus has been on improving hospice understanding and patient access through education to the physician, healthcare, and lay communities in Catawba and Alexander counties. And that's exactly what she's going to help us with today. Julie is a nationally known speaker. She's a consultant on the development of hospice programming for patients with end stage heart failure. And she's also a respecting choices trainer on the subject of advanced care planning and advanced directives, and I think she'll tell us a little bit more about that. She also serves on the North Carolina Partnership for Compassionate Care, the Cancer and Alzheimer Disease Task Forces in Catawba County, the Ethics Committee at Fry Regional Medical Center, and the Investigational Review Board at Catawba Valley Medical Center. She's the president-elect of our local Catawba County Senior Information Resource Group. Julie lives with her family here in Hickory, and uh, we are just delighted to have you with us here. Thank you. Julie, let's start with some real basic questions. What exactly is hospice and what is palliative care? Well, hospice goes back to um, the Crusades, to the medieval period, the Middle Ages. It actually is derived, uh, the word hospice is a Latin word from, from the Latin word hospitium, which means to receive a guest. And the first hospices were way stations or rest stops for crusaders, um, weary wanderers on the journey between one destination to another during the Holy Wars where they were taken in and embraced and refreshed and replenished and cared for regardless of station or cause or uh, which side of the holy war they were on. Um, And that concept sort of was coined uh, for a modern-day movement that started in the United States in the mid-'70s after uh, a hospice was developed in the suburbs of London, England, St. Christopher's Hospice. To, and, that, and the term hospice was used in this modern movement to define a program of care for people with terminal illness who are facing life-threatening disease and the symptoms uh, related to it, who were on their journey from this life to the next, and to provide support to their caregivers and those who they love. Palliative care. Palliative care is also from the Latin palliere, meaning to cloak, and 
All along, as we've provided hospice, hospice workers have provided palliative support, comfort care, if you will. So you can use the word palliative to define the kind of care, an adjective, if you will, for the kind of care that hospice providers um, give. But nowadays, since um, the late 90s, early 2000s, there are, there's a new movement, the palliative care programming movement, which turns the word into a noun, to define uh, a program of care for people with serious illness, many times long before hospice care is even on their radar, for um, the expertise of providing support for both physical symptoms as well as the stress and the complex decision-making that's involved along their journey. So that's a new movement that's been around, um, you know, about 14 years now. Uh, that's taken hold in our community as, as well as across the nation. There's about 5,800 hospices nationwide wow. and approximately 2,000 palliative care programs. Uh, many of those palliative programs are based in hospitals, and in our community here locally, we have a continuum of care where it can be provided not only in the hospital but on an outpatient basis uh, with home visits by nurse practitioners in the home as well as in the long-term care or nursing home setting. That's great. That really helps to differentiate the two terms. For me, I I know that in in the past I've been confused sometimes about how they're similar and how they're different. So palliative care and hospice care could be offered in the same place, in a person's home Mm -hmm. or in a hospital or in a specific facility or in different places. Yes, and um, the setting for care is really debate, you know, depends on the program in your community, and I advise our listeners to really assess the programs that are available where they live because um, hospices are regulated by state licensure, uh, Medicare certification guidelines, Medicaid in the states that have hospice Medicaid benefits, um, and in our accrediting bodies that are out there. Palliative care being newer has only um, a few kind of rules. If they have a standard for care set forth by um, a national organization called CAPC, the Centers to Advance Palliative Care. But because it's newer, it's not yet as consistent across the country and may look different in your, from one community to the next. Um, most of the definitions are things you might read online or on the web. Um, look at palliative care programs that are provided in the hospital setting, which is generally where they started um, and where most of the programs exist. And so that might be something for you to consider. But in uh, our community, we provide an extension of that. um, And some other communities also provide clinic, palliative care clinics. Um, The big difference, I would say, is in the structure. Hospice programs are interdisciplinary in their uh, provision of care, not only addressing the patient's physical needs, but their psychosocial needs with a social worker and counselor their pharmaceutical needs with assistance by pharmacy, of course their medical needs with their primary physician and our medical director consulting, uh, companionship and errand running and and, uh, supportive needs with volunteers, spiritual concerns are addressed by um, chaplains and the patient's faith community that they had before hospice. Um, And that's very customized. And of course their, their physical needs are also addressed by nursing and Um, our hospice aides who are certified nurse assistants. Um, those, those care needs are really addressed very uniquely dependent on the needs of the patient and family and their 
a plan of care is developed for them. Now, in palliative care, the CAPC guidelines are for an interdisciplinary approach, much like hospice upstream. I think the founding matriarch of that movement, Dr. Diane Meyer out of New York, uh, she uh, works in Mount Sinai Hospital Medical Center there, um, once said that, you know, we really, in the early days of hospice, made one mistake, and that is that we moved hospice out into the community because the plea was for care at home, largely in the home setting. But there are people who still spend their days in the hospital. They still suffer from symptoms there, and they do pass away there. Um, and so we need to address that. And um, unfortunately, we should, should have done that at the same time we were developing hospice in the home, develop an inpatient kind of um, format for that, which is part of the hospice benefit. But what happened is this new movement called palliative care sort of addressed that void. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the hospital, some programs are interdisciplinary. In other communities, it's simply a medical consultative service. Mm -hmm. um, And largely that is dictated by reimbursement or lack thereof. Um, And we'll address that in a moment. So in our community here, we have um, a board-certified palliative physician at both of our local hospitals. Um, That person can be consulted, that physician can be consulted, just like any specialist for specific needs for that patient. So the primary admitting physician may ask for a palliative consult, just like he might ask for a cardiology consult or nephrology consult, what have you. Would that be fairly common in most hospitals to have? Eight out of ten in the U.S. right now are predicted by 2015 to have palliative care programs. Mm -hmm. Okay, good for people to know. Of some format. So he he or she, that palliative care physician, would spend time, and that's the gift that they have along with their expertise, is that they have the time to sit and um, hear the patient's story, hear their concerns, listen, and then talk with them about how to best address those symptoms and concerns, how to navigate the health care system, how to make uh, complicated, address complicated decision-making issues, et cetera. And when the patient's discharged in our community, they can be discharged with follow-up by an extender, a nurse, a nurse uh, practitioner primarily, in the assisted living long-term care or home setting. Um, so that there's a continuum. So that's how palliative works here. Um, in, other, in other communities, it might be slightly different. So I um, urge your listeners to address that and assess that where they live. But in mm-hmm. general, regardless of community, hospice in general and palliative care in general will be the same, the, that they will be dealing with patients at the same point yes. in the journey. Yeah, and, and a lot of people want to equate palliative care with hospice because many of the palliative care programs across our nation have been initiated or initially supported by hospice because we are experts in symptom management. It made sense that we, you know, took an interest in this subject of symptom control further upstream. Um, However, they're very different and distinct. The population of patients that are served under palliative care may still, may be served as early as the diagnosis of their serious illness. They may still be undergoing active, aggressive, curative-related therapies uh, for a cancer patient that might be um, cancer chemotherapy or radiation or surgeries, uh, where hospice patients are those who have come to that fork in the path and say, you know, I've had all of that. I've appreciated all of that. Now my goal is to be 
uh, where I can be in control of my life at home as much as possible in the comfort of familiar surroundings as best as I can be or a place that's similar to home and I can have support for my symptoms as as life takes uh, it proceeds towards the end with all the support that I can get to maximize my quality of life until then that's hospice I know my experience mm-hmm. had been I honestly thought that there was one hospice one palliative care per community but when my mother-in-law was at that point we found that there were four in one mm-hmm. in one area so that was really interesting to me to know that that there really sometimes are options there's lots of different kinds of hospices um, probably the primary uh, I would say descriptor is a community-based not-for-profit freestanding hospice program. Um, However, there are others that are for-profit. There are others that are affiliated with hospitals as an arm of a hospital. They may be a division of a home health agency. Um, And there, there may be more than one in your community. Some states have regulations around the numbers of hospices that can be approved to, to open their doors. Others, it's free to open the doors regardless of, you know, wherever. Um, and I would encourage, I would say it's wise, again, for listeners to um, look at the different hospices that they can choose from, assess their size, their services, look at their website, determine whether they are accredited or not. Um, accreditation is the highest standard of care in our nation. They might call them and ask how many of their nurses are certified in their specialty of hospice and palliative nursing. Do they have an inpatient unit? Who do they contract with for it if they don't? Um, what's their service area? You know, some of them are smaller service areas. Some go farther and wider. So there's lots of questions that will help you decide the hospice to choose from. But the but listeners out there, you do have a choice. Um, you do have a choice. You can. It is based on which hospice you prefer. That is such mm-hmm. good information yes, because we is. wouldn't know to even mm-hmm. ask those questions. Mm-hmm. Okay, and exactly the kind of information that I think listeners need to know before you actually get to the fork in the road where you need hospice and before the crisis hits. Do your mm-hmm. do your educational outreach before. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's drill down a little bit. Now okay. we've got a big picture of hospice okay. and palliative care. What makes a person eligible for either hospice or palliative care, and who determines that eligibility? Okay, let's let's start on the timeline. So someone who's earlier on in a serious illness would be your palliative candidate, um, and that is someone who has a serious illness that may eventually take their life down the road. We don't know when. Um, there's not a definitive designated time span here that we're talking about but they have some issues with symptoms that are that may be challenging Um, they are generally seeing a primary physician or maybe a specialist for them um, and that specialist may be challenged they might be even hospitalized because of those symptoms they can actually ask for that um, consultation if it's available in their community and their doctor will hopefully write an order for that. If they're in the hospital, that means that consultative visit to their room. If they're in the community, they may be um, then able to be visited at home or be asked to, to go to a palliative care clinic, as I mentioned, wherever that may be in, your, in some of those communities out there. And those folks are generally um, of any age. There's not an age restriction, um, and there's not a timeline to, you know, required. The one thing that probably needs to be said is that this is for someone with serious illness 
that, like I said, it will limit their life eventually. Not someone who has a chronic problem like chronic back pain, for example, that they're learning how to cope with for a lifespan, okay, that they're expected to live with for a lifespan. So uh, that would probably be one unique uh, differentiation there. Now, in hospice, there's a little bit more specifics required by regulation. Um, being that the majority of patients we serve nationwide are Medicare beneficiaries, and in some states that's also Medicaid, the regulations stipulate that um, an attending physician write an order for uh, care for a patient who has a life-limiting illness of six months or less using his best judgment and also predicting that that's if the, if the disease takes its normal course. Now, that might mean that someone can be with us six months or longer if it doesn't take its normal course, or six months or shorter if it doesn't take its normal course. So um, I encourage listeners, please take advantage of the time frame that it's available because we get patients very late in the, in the game, um, and we can do so much with time. Um, patients obviously have to give their consent. We, need, we ask for their written permission to provide care, as we do in palliative care. Um, and they need to be within that hospice's specific licensed service area, and that varies from hospice to hospice, of course. So the patient or the family can request a specific hospice if they've mm-hmm. known they something can. about it, had a friend, or something like that. Mm-hmm. They can actually request. So we need a physician's order, his permission, and we do that for palliative as well. Our program specifically obviously has to... Um, with a a medical consultation. It's a request from a physician to a physician. Um, And then in hospice, it's a request from physician to to a hospice. Now, I will say that um, a request for hospice can sometimes be for an educational visit. It doesn't necessarily mean for admission. If a family's trying to educate themselves, caregivers especially want to know more, then they can simply call, and we can make a visit to tell them about what we do, how we provide care, um, describe the services that are available for later down the road. Also good to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. What about payment? How does you mentioned Medicare and Medicaid, but how does all of that work? What can you tell us? Well, I don't think there's a hospice program out there that would say that uh, that all of us would say we'll take money from whatever source we can find it because we want to provide the best services possible. Um, primarily before the um, hospice Medicare benefit, which was uh, rolled out in the early 80s, many of us started as hand-holding organizations, and we received charitable funding through our communities. Um, United Way organizations funded our program in particular early on. Um, we've always been recipients of gifts and, and charitable donations for the extras that we want to provide in addition to our regulatory requirements. But Medicare is our largest uh, um, reimbursement source. So for patients over 65, 65 and older, or who have been deemed disabled um, and receive Medicare benefits for that, we can provide the hospice Medicare benefit, which is a service available to every Medicare beneficiary whenever they're appropriately ready for us. Um, Likewise, in probably the majority of the states nationwide, um, we have the hospice Medicaid benefit for the impoverished to meet that certain uh, poverty level. And the regulations mimic the Medicare benefit. The reimbursements has subtle differences state to state. 
than those um, provided nationally. And then there's private insurance companies that many of them have hospice benefits that look like the regulatory guidelines of our Medicare and Medicaid programs. Some are slightly different um, with subtle differences. That's wise for you to assess, too, as a listener, if your loved one may be under 65 and, and still being followed through their private insurance coverage. And I mentioned charitable giving. We we use that funding to augment our programming, to add um, services that are unique and special, and also to accommodate for the bereavement period, which is unreimbursed but also required by Medicare and Medicaid. Yeah. You talked about hospice palliative care. I'm assuming follows the same thing, insurance, Medicare, Medicaid. Palliative care is slightly different. Again, you need to look at your unique program in your community. Um, there's not designated Medicare funding for palliative care per se under Medicare Part A, which is the division that hospice Medicare falls under. However, um, in our community, the way we work is because it's a medical, a palliative medical consultation service, we can bill Medicare Part B. So it's uh, feasible that a palliative patient can be seen not only by our nurse practitioner, but also by a home health agency earlier upstream because the home health agency is making home visits using reimbursed by Medicare A and our nurse practitioners billing Medicare Part B. Likewise, in the nursing home, that skilled nursing coverage is billable to Medicare Part A, our nursing practitioner visit Part B. Good to know. Yes, it is. And for each insurance company privately, we would have to negotiate. Um, some of them provide differently for palliative services. Gotcha. Okay. Good. We'll get back to your show in a moment. Just a reminder, you're listening to The Mesh, an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Find out more at themesh.tv and give us feedback on what you like. And now, as promised, back to your show. Can you give us any uh, case studies or maybe some examples of stories specifically that hospice and or palliative care have helped adult children and their aging parents through this journey? I can give you a very personal one, um, and it's the story of my father-in-law, who actually moved to our community a few years back um, because he was a widower, and his heart condition was worsening over time. Um, he had a history of coronary artery disease and intractable arrhythmia, um, which is uh, was being treated with medications, but he was having more and more bouts of congestive heart failure, fluid on the lungs. Um, and shortness of breath from that. Um, at the same time, he was getting some increased anxiety and less independence and wanted to be closer to his children, my husband and my sister-in-law here in town. And I used him as an example because he had the full spectrum. He started with palliative care in an assisted living set setting. He lived um, about a mile, from, well, even less than that, from our local uh, hospital heart center, um, less than a mile from my sister-in-law's home. It made him feel secure there. And we were able to start care for him at a time when he was getting more and more short of breath, but he wanted to go see his other daughter who lives in Virginia, my sister-in-law there. 
at Christmas time, and he had some real concerns about traveling and his symptoms and how to manage them mm-hmm. if he should get up there and things should change and you know what happened if he got up there and had to stay there and um, just what what did he need to have in place so i I said, you know I think palliative consult would be a very appropriate thing for you and he agreed, and at the time, our one of our uh, physicians on staff uh, was able to make a home visit. She was actually the person, the the provider assigned to that facility. So he was thrilled. He was having a a mobile doctor's visit on wheels, if you will. Um, <laughs> he hadn't, you know, those things don't happen anymore, That's right? right. Mm-hmm. So he was he was pretty excited. Uh, not only that, she was a pretty lady, <laughs> but um, she made visits early on in November. He came on board in November. Um, got his uh, symptoms managed with shortness of breath, um, you know, went through his medications with him carefully, also sat down with him and talked about medical choices for the future, made sure he had his directives in place, his North Carolina living will and health care power of attorney. In our state, we also have a new form called MOS, the Medical Orders for Scope of Treatment, which follow the PULSE paradigm. Um, that those are transferable and would help a doctor in an emergency room know his wishes. Now, what is a pulse paradigm? That's a whole nother discussion, oh, Francis. I'd love to come back and talk about that. That is a um, uh, a new set of physician orders that have come out in many states after the death of Terry Schiavo or or just before. Um, to help physicians. It puts the language of the living will into language physicians can understand. So it's measurable. Me- it's, it's, it's clinical. It's a physician's mm-hmm. order that is, covers more than just do not resuscitate, which w- is what we had in place in our county before mm-hmm. most, in our state before most. It encompasses um, the patient's request for location of care, the extent of care provided, whether they want resuscitation versus DNR, whether they want ongoing antibiotics or antibiotics on trial or none at all, blood products. Wow, so all the details. All those details are more specific. Mm-hmm. So that's a whole other talk. I'd love to come back and share. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that helped him address some of his concerns and decisions, as well as having those other directives in place. And he was able to go spend Christmas, come back, um, moved into the new year, started to have some symptoms with shortness of breath again and and CHF. The program was able to manage that until he was um, in a panicked state um, on two occasions, went back to the hospital. And on the second, I told him uh, it was at a time when the hospitals were gearing up for... um, the Stark Law that was going to punish them if they were rehospitalizing patients with heart failure, which is a new trend. Um, and I told him, I said, you know, we can take care of you at home, you know, for this shortness of breath. We can give you your IV diuretics and Lasix to, to draw this fluid away at home, but it requires our hospice program. And so he agreed to that. So in February, he came on board with hospice. He had had very regular visits by our palliative physician up to that point and benefited, but he needed added services. Um, Our family had received a lot of reassurance under palliative care as caregivers, but the stepped-up care that we could provide with with hospice was going to be a great benefit, especially to my sister-in-law who was carrying a lot of the burden day-to-day. So he he started to receive. um, I think first thing he got was... uh, some, some equipment um, and oxygen 
and uh, that allowed him to be able to continue to go down to the dining hall and, and have meals with his friends there. Um, it had a little seat that would come down if he couldn't catch his breath before he got to the elevator and sit and catch his breath. Um, he also started getting the help of an aide to help him. Not that he couldn't bathe himself. It just helped save his energy mm -hmm. sure. quite a bit. Um, our nurse made regular visits. Um, and during the course of his time uh, on hospice, he, was, he received IV Lasix three times, um, and that prevented three hospitalizations that he would have probably ended up in the ER for and maybe not admitted, would have been kept overnight and on a, you know, a very hard gurney for a long period of time and, and not received an admission, um, been discharged back home. Um, he had a volunteer. Uh, he also had glaucoma and macular degeneration and just couldn't read his stock pages and the, the new, this Wall Street Journal. And um, so his volunteer read to him. And, um, and in the end, uh, he died in, in April. Um, he uh, developed some terminal agitation. And it's hard. I'm pausing because I'm sensitive to the fact that he was my family. But... That was very hard. Um, family was there, but it was a, it was very difficult. And my sister-in-law stay, stayed up at night with him. Couldn't manage to do that. My sister-in-law came down from Virginia. They were exhausted. And the hospice stepped up and provided what we call continuous care. They brought in uh, a nurse as well as an aide to take over. And um, they sat for a 24-hour period monitoring his agitation. He's trying to climb out of bed and... Mm -hmm. He needed at that point to be catheterized and needed certain specific um, medications for his agitation that required, you know, ongoing monitoring. And eventually my sister-in-law said, you know, I think this is, this is just too tough here at the assisted living. We need to take him to our hospice house. So we were able to transfer him to our inpatient unit at um, uh, Catawba Regional Hospice. And um, he spent less than 24 hours there. He was, he was in a wonderful setting. Um, but he was able to stay at the place he called home for all but less than 24 hours of his life. So that was a full um, component. I would say minus the chaplain. He had a, a strong support system mm -hmm. spiritually. Um, he was yeah. okay with that. Yeah, it's a good um, illustration of all the services, both for mm -hmm. the family and for the patient. And in the meantime, the other thing that's very important for families out there to know is that the symptoms that our, uh, the hospice team are challenged with related to that life-limiting illness uh, create a medication list that can be very costly and very expensive. And up until the hospice Medicare benefit, our public was having to pay for that out of pocket. They were stretching out doses. They were not re getting refills because they couldn't afford it. They were saving medicines up for when they needed them later. We don't need to do that because our hospice benefit provides for reimbursement and delivery, and the nurses who come reconcile, they go make sure those medicines don't run out and they're, that, that they're refilled and that they're changed accordingly, uh, according to symptoms as they escalate or change, and that is a great benefit. Um, all of that addresses the ability to take care of these symptoms and manage them, along with the expertise of the staff who are you know helping to administer them and, and explain them to family there's a lot of supportive education provided by both palliative care providers as well as hospice mm -hmm. providers 
along the way to help them feel empowered and more comfortable, to help overcome the physical things that distract you if you don't have hospice so that you can get to the real important issues in life that, you know, families and patients want to take care of those things. Finish the unfinished business, talk about and reminisce, the mem- you know, address the memories and have the richness of the relationship be prominent and first and foremost. And I have known of hospice, not necessarily palliative care, but hospice in a number of states. Mm-hmm. And what you describe is just this sensitive, wonderful program it for, is. for people. And it is. And it's not to be confused with only just that. I think there's some people out there who think, oh, it's a wonderful, hand-holding, supportive, loving oh, program, but, but, but it's also very, much, yes. very, very, very much coupled with skill and expertise, especially now, never a better time. Many of our staff have gone through certification uh, testing that makes them very qualified in their specialty, and that's not only the nurses and the physicians, but also our aides and our social workers um, and our nurse practitioners on the palliative side. So it's very, uh, that's actually a very good thing to assess about the hospice you you might want to consider is to how many of the staff have those qualifications. Right. Yes, every time it really mm-hmm. is that balance. How can people find out about hospice and palliative care in their communities? Um, I always say, you know, word of mouth is really good, but there are some really good resources. Uh, being that this extends across our nation, this, this uh, um, talk today, I think it's wise to start with our National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization, which is www.nhpco.org. And when you get on that website, that's nhpco.org, there's a, in the search box, you could find a hospice or, or look for that on the, on the home page. And that page will pop up and you can put in your um, address and your zip code and the hospices that are members of NHPCO which is a good criteria, you know, to be a member, will pop up, and that will show you the choices that you have. Um, you can also use good old Google um, and type in, you know, hospices in your community, put in your zip code and see what comes up there and make a comparison. I encourage people to go and look at those hospices' websites, uh, visit them, read them, see which ones they relate to, they connect with, call and ask questions. Um, If you are a member of a faith community, ask your minister. If you're a member of uh, a caregiving support group like we have here with ACAP, ask and see if anyone's utilized the the services of hospice before and which ones and see what their opinions are. Julie, could you Mm -hmm. repeat that website just one more time? It's www.nhpco.org. That stands for National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization. You've talked about a lot of misconceptions that people, certainly that I have had previously, about hospice Mm -hmm. and palliative care. Is there anything else that you would like to clear up that maybe we haven't talked about? I've been doing this work for a long time, and the myths are still out there. So anytime (laughs) we have a chance to share them, we will. I think probably the, the most common myth that we hear is that Hospice is just for cancer patients. Um, And though lots of hospices, when they started their care years ago, received their first referrals who were, you know, with patients who had malignancies, we take care of patients with any end of life disorder uh, of all kinds. If you think of 
the many organs you have in the body and how uh, they can lend themselves to diseases down the road. We take care of patients with end-stage dementia, Alzheimer's, end-stage heart disease, heart disorders, end-stage lung diseases like COPD and emphysema, end-stage liver diseases, renal failure, um, end-stage neurological disorders like ALS, um, progressive Parkinson's disease, Guillain-Barre, MS, for example, um, stroke, the list goes on. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, that is, I think that's really important, particularly as we talk about an aging population. Mm -hmm. Now, in our community, about, and this is uh, similar to national statistics, about 40% of our patients have malignancies, cancers of all kinds. 60%, therefore, have other disorders. So it's, it used to be backwards. That used to be uh, fli- flipped. It's flipped. More of our patients have, have other disorders other than cancer. Another myth probably is, um, and this one is a challenge to all of, all of the hospices across the nation, is that lots of our public believe that hospice is simply for the last hours of life, the last days to hours, that someone needs to be almost comatose or bed-bound before they are hospice-appropriate. And though we are all more than willing to step in and and take uh, uh, become involved and help support families at that time, as I mentioned earlier, there's so much more we can do if we come in earlier when we can build relationships and families and patients can come to know our staff and trust us. Um, the benefits that I mentioned earlier that reimburse for care, six months or less, generally for hospice, and um, for private insurance reimbursement as well. So feasibly, you know, six months before the, the, the life ends for someone, they can come on hospice care and be admitted, and they may be up and walking at that time, may not need as much in the way of services, and, and we can be involved and progress and, develop, you know, add services and complement their care as, as their care needs increase. The other thing, I guess, problem, probable misconception is that uh, people think that we are for the elderly, just for the elderly, and we take care of people across the life spectrum. Um, we have take care, taken care of infants. Um, actually, we even here had a had a uh, child who came on service at birth. The family knew that they were going to deliver a child with multiple handicaps that would, if that child lived beyond the hospital, would need support. And so we became involved even before the baby was born, um, all the way up through through the the oldest patient that we've had over the years. Um, the majority of our patients are older, but we do care for patients throughout the life spectrum. Um, I think a common misconception is also that the indigent or the poor think that they can't afford hospice. Maybe they don't realize that they have the benefits and that also if they're not covered by insurance, that hospices are willing to admit them regardless of ability to pay. Um, and that's also a reason we look for charitable, charitable support so that we can say yes to admit these patients who have um, lack of coverage. But also that the wealthy think that we're just for charity, for charitable cases, or for the indigent. We're for everyone, um, and, and that's regardless of income level, race, creed, socioeconomic class, gender, uh, across the board. Um, and also... 
you know, one of the one of the things that we always emphasize is that hospice is not just doom and gloom. You know, people think oh, hospice. Oh no, I don't want those workers in here. They're going to just talk about death and dying. We are going to meet that patient and family wherever they are. So if uh, and I always say a person dies the way they've lived. So if we entered the home of a family who's had a joyous relationship and a happy, humorous lifestyle, that's probably going to be the environment that they exit from. Um, and we're going to be meeting them where they are. So if they're cracking jokes, we are as well. Um, if we're taking the cue that um, they're open and honest, then we can be. If on the flip side of that, we take the um, cue that they are private and uh, serious, then we're going to wait till the appropriate relationship is built to introduce um, topics of, that are sensitive, you know, based on when they're ready. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very much oriented towards what makes them more comfortable, most comfortable, meeting them with, where they are in their unique scenario. Good. Okay. You you have talked not only about the patient but also the family. Mm-hmm. So talk a little more because we deal specifically with uh, the adult child caregivers. That's what ACAP is about. Will you talk about services and supports for family mm-hmm. during the time that their loved one is still alive as well as after the passing? Sure. Um, hospice came around a time when we were kind of making a, a, a shift, a paradigm shift in our nation from health care being provided by sort of a patriarchal-driven uh, model where the doctor was at, at the controls um, and the patient, if they asked questions, it was simply to clarify and what the doctor said is what they did. Um, and it was simply the physician and, their, and the caregivers under that physician. Hospice provides an interdisciplinary approach where all disciplines are equal in, in um, the way they provide care, and the services are very customized to not only the patient as the unit of care, but also the family, however it's defined. And family for us can mean, you know, a stereotypical family of siblings and parents, or it can be a person who's alone and has a support system from uh, a community of friends or it could be a church-related support group, uh, what have you, however that family is defined. So that family is as important to us as is the patient. And where earlier regulations for care in our country, like home health, for example, the care had to be directed and the documentation for care had to be directed to the patient only, we have always been able to provide care not only to the patient but to their support system, their caregivers. So it's feasible that a social work visit for us might be in a coffee shop with a a caregiver while another caregiver is at the bedside with a loved one. That caregiver at the coffee shop might need some counseling and have some special issues or questions and and wants to meet privately. We can do that, and that's okay. a lot of times our, our nurses and social workers will make joint visits so that the nurse can focus on the clinical, physical needs of the patient. And while that's happening, the caregiver can have support from the social worker. Um, it's very a very wonderful model. Um, I think it's healthcare at its best. I'm, I'm personally biased, of course, but um, it works and we know it, and we also have ways to supplement it if it needs additional services. So 
if that social worker needs more more support herself, we can bring in counseling. We can bring in our grief counselors who work after the death, before the death, if we if we see evidence of anticipatory grief and loss in family members, which is obviously common. Um, we can supplement that support. Again, spiritual support, big and very important. Again, defined by the patient and family as to how they define that and what their needs are. And we can bring in their support systems that they're familiar with, or if they've disconnected, we can reconnect them with a church or faith community, um, or we can be a substitute for it uh, or, or add to it, an adjunct to it um, in, the, in the services of our chaplaincy. And then we've got our volunteers, and our volunteers are, I like to say, the patient's best, I mean, excuse me, the patient's last best friend. Um, someone who has voluntarily given of their time to, and, and they've taken a lot of volunteer time to be trained, um, who wants to go into a home, into a sensitive situation, and spend time and give of themselves. And, and nothing is too uh, burdensome for them. It, if they want to uh, just simply be and sit with someone who's demented, they will. Read to pe- patients, uh, address Christmas cards, do yard work, run errands, pay bills, help the, you know, lots of different ideas there about how volunteers can provide support. And I encourage caregivers to utilize all of this earlier, like I said, than, rather than later, because it can be such a benefit to them as well as the patient. Really, really mm-hmm. good information, Julie. I, I, my head is spinning with all the things that I've learned. <laughs> Are there any final words of wisdom or specifically any other resources or websites that you'd like people to know about before we adjourn? Um, I think I've highlighted the one that um, hits my heart most commonly, and that is, you know, please call us sooner. Take advantage of the support earlier. Um, don't wait until the crisis hits. It was so many times we've had people come back and tell us, I wish I'd known about hospice sooner. And it wasn't that they didn't hear it sooner. They were probably presented with it several times before they accepted it. It was that they had fears about it or they felt like their loved one wasn't ready or maybe it was they weren't ready as the mm-hmm. caregiver. Um, so like so many things, just picking up and learning the information mm-hmm. before you need it. Exactly. And maybe if you don't, think you're ready to have us cross your door into your living room just call us to find out more about us so that we you're prepared earlier Mm -hmm. to know your options um that's always good that information is always good you have choices and this is one choice and uh it's a good one find out about it so you can weigh it against the ones that you do know about um and also weigh other options too but call us sooner Get help sooner. Great. Thank you, Julie. Thank Thank you you so much. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the caregiver community today. Francis and I hope that you've enjoyed as well as learned something today about caregiving caregivers, hospice, and palliative care. The program you're listening to is part of the MESH network of online shows and podcasts. You may learn more about the MESH and check out other programs available for free at www.themesh.tv. On the MESH site, you may also send us a question or a recommendation for future show topics using the Contact Us button. 
We also encourage you to find our podcast on Apple iTunes, where you may subscribe to the show and then make sure you receive all future episodes sent to you automatically. You'll find a link to the MeSH website on our ACAP community website as well. Francis, can you tell us a little bit more about where you can find information on ACAP community? Absolutely. For more information about ACAP Community, go to our website, www.acapcommunity.org, and that is A-C-A-P Community, as Adult Children of Aging Parents, community.org, or you can call us toll-free at 1-877-599-ACAP, A-C-A-P, or one 877 599-2227 or you can email us at info at acapcommunity.org Lots of ways to get in touch. Can't miss us. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Julie. Thank you. Glad to be here. You've been listening to The Mesh an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Check us out online at themesh.tv. Discover other network shows and give us feedback on what you just heard.